Questions to the Prime Minister. Craig Tracy. Question number one, Mr Speaker. Prime Minister. Thank you, Mr Speaker. May I add my congratulations to Sarah Davis on achieving uh, this position and saying how good it always is to see women in high office. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, the tragedy of Jallianwala Bagh in 1919 is a shameful scar on British Indian history. As Her Majesty the Queen said before visiting Jallianwala Bagh in 1997, it is a distressing example of our past history with India. We deeply regret what happened and the suffering caused. I am pleased that today the UK-India relationship is one of collaboration, partnership, prosperity and security. Indian diaspora make an enormous contribution to British society, and I'm sure the whole House wishes to see the UK's relationship with India continue to flourish. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Craig Tracy. Thank you, Mr Speaker. And uh, I fully agree with the Prime Minister when she's repeatedly said that we need to both honour the result of the referendum and our manifesto commitments, which mean leaving the customs union and single market. So does my right of friend agree with me that if the best way to do that rather than delivering a diluted deal which is unrecognisable to many of those who voted to leave is to go under WTO rules. We should grab that opportunity and believe in the ability of the British people and a Conservative government to make a success of it. Well, can I agree with my honourable friend that I believe that a Conservative government will make a success of whatever the situation is in relation to Brexit? But I still believe that actually uh, a, the best Brexit for the UK is to be able to leave in an orderly way, to be able to leave with a deal. And uh, I do want to ensure that that Brexit does indeed honour the result of the referendum. There are members of this House who don't want to honour the result of the referendum. I do. Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm very pleased that the Prime Minister mentioned what happened in Jarawalabag and the issues of the massacre at Amritsar 100 years ago. I think the people, in memory of those that lost their lives and the brutality of what happened, deserve a full, clear and unequivocal apology for what took place on that occasion. And I join the Prime Minister and yourself, Mr Speaker, in welcoming Sarah Davis to her appointment. I'm sure she's going to be absolutely brilliant. I remember the day she started work in the House and she's done incredibly well. And also, Mr Speaker, I welcome um, my honourable friend, the new member for Newport West, who's here today, who is, I believe, a very worthy successor to the late Paul Flynn. Today, Mr Speaker, marks the 21st anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, a defining moment in Irish history which allowed peace to prevail. It was a great achievement and I pay tribute to the work done by the Labour government at that time as well as those on all sides of Ireland, North and South and of this House in achieving the crucial breakthrough in the peace process which we have to ensure maintains. And as we continue to find discussions to, on a compromise over the Brexit deal that could shape our future economic relationship with Europe, protecting jobs, rights and our economy, we shouldn't forget communities across this country that have been abandoned by this government in the here and now. Official figures show that nine of the ten most deprived council areas in this country have seen cuts that are almost three times the average of any other council. Why has the Prime Minister decided to cut the worst off areas in our country more than the most well off? 
can I, can I first of all say to the right honourable gentleman that he's right to reference the 21st anniversary of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, which was indeed an important moment in Northern Irish history and which has led to the peace that we have seen subsequently. And can I say, can I welcome the actions that were taken by politicians of all parties uh, uh, in this House and elsewhere to ensure that that peace was possible and that that, that agreement was, uh, was possible as well? Can I say to the uh, honourable gentleman in relation to the issue of uh, council funding, actually councils do have more money available this year. A real, yes, a real terms increase. The right honourable gentleman voted against that uh, money being available. Uh, But what we've also done, what we've also done is listen to councils given them extra flexibility. For example, they've called for a long time to have the borrowing cap lifted so they could build more homes, and we've done exactly that, listened to councils and given them what they wanted. Jeremy Corbyn. Speaker, the problem is that child poverty is rising. In councils with the highest levels of child poverty, over £1,000 per household has been taken in funding cuts in the last decade. In some of the wealthiest areas of our country, they've only lost £5. Take Swindon, for example, where Honda recently announced 3,500 job cuts. Child poverty is over one-third higher than it is in Surrey. Yet in Swindon, they will have lost £235 per household in government funding cuts, whereas a household in Surrey will see more money from central government. Can the Prime Minister explain why Swindon faces cuts while Surrey gets more money? Can I say to the right honourable gentleman, actually what we see in terms of spending power per home is that the average spending power per home for the most deprived local authorities is over 20% higher than for the least deprived local authorities. That's Conservatives delivering for local councils. Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, homelessness is three times higher in Swindon than in Surrey. And today we learn that two-thirds of councils do not have the funding necessary to comply with the Homeless Reduction Act. In Stoke-on-Trent, the councillors lost £640 per household, yet child poverty is more than double the rate in Surrey, which has seen an increase in funding. Does the Prime Minister think that areas with the highest levels of child poverty do deserve to be facing the largest cuts in their budgets? What I think is that members across this House who are concerned about child poverty should take action to ensure that we're helping families to get more money into their pockets. It is this, it is this government, it is this government that's frozen fuel duty, it's this government that's introduced the national living wage, it's this government that's given lower paid workers the highest increase, and it's this government that on Saturday saw 32 million households see a tax cut. If the right honourable gentleman really wants to help people out there with money in their pockets, he should be backing these measures by the government instead of voting against them. Is that under this government 500,000 more children have gone into relative poverty? And in Stoke on Trent alone, 4,000 food bank parcels were handed out to children last year. And if it wasn't bad enough, it's about to get rather worse. 
Tory proposals on the new funding formula for councils will make poorer areas even poorer. They're removing the word deprivation from the funding criteria. In a phrase that George Orwell would have been very proud of, they've called this the fairer funding formula. Areas like Stoke will lose out even more. Can the Prime Minister explain why she wants to give less funding to the most deprived parts of our country? No, that's not what we're doing. What we are doing is ensuring that we have a fairer... We are ensuring that we have a fairer funding formula across local authorities, but we're also ensuring that we're putting more money and making more money available for local authorities, for those local authorities to spend. But let's just see what we see from council after council up and down the country. If people want to ensure they have good local services and are paying less in council tax, that's what they see under Conservative councils. There's a clear message. If you want to pay less council tax and have good local services, vote Conservative. Mr Speaker, unfortunately for the Prime Minister, the truth is when Labour controls local councils, households pay on average £350 less than those living in Tory areas. The average council tax per dwelling in Labour council areas is £1,169 compared to £1,520 in Tory council areas. The Society of Local Authority Chief Executives called the fair funding formula decision perverse. And even before this new formula kicks in, councils are losing out now. A Conservative council leader said earlier this year, we are really, really, really short of money. I mean, there is no money for him to run his services. What does the Prime Minister say to local authorities struggling to make ends meet while her government continues to underfund the vital services that they deliver? We have over the years asked local councils to take some difficult decisions in relation to living within our means. Why did we have to do that? We had to do that because we were left the biggest deficit in our peacetime history by the last Labour government. Political choice made to impose austerity on local government has hit the poorest and worst off the worst in every one of our communities across the country. Since 2010, 50 pence of every pound has been stripped from local authorities by her government. That is the reality of what life is like for those trying to deliver services. Mr Speaker, the evidence is clear. The Tories have abandoned communities across the country. They've left towns and cities to fend for themselves after nine years of vindictive, damaging austerity. 1,000 fewer Sure Start centres one of the greatest achievements of the last government. 760 fewer youth centres and a social care system in absolute crisis. Child poverty is up. Violent crime is up and homelessness and rough sleeping is also up. This government, Mr Speaker, stands for tax cuts for the richest and swinging cuts for the rest. Will the Prime Minister, will the Prime Minister now admit that far from tackling the burning injustices she talked about, their, her government's cruel and unfair policies have pushed councils to the brink and left those just about managing not being able to manage at all? That is her legacy. 
I am proud to lead a government that has seen more children in good schools, more doctors, more jobs, lower borrowing, lower unemployment, lower taxes. That is Conservatives delivering across the country for everyone. And what would we see with the Labour government under the right honourable gentleman? Destroying our defences, abandoning our allies, billions more in borrowing, fewer opportunities and higher taxes for everyone. That's a Labour future and we will never let it happen. Antoinette Sandbach. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Some argue for completely free markets and self-regulation by big business, but this can lead to harmful content and extreme views being promoted. The tech giants who act as publishers have shown that they won't act without regulation. Will the Prime Minister join me in welcoming the publication of the online harms white paper and support the levelling of the playing field between print and broadcast media and the tech giants? Can I, can I say to my honourable friend, she's raised a very important point that I think matters to people up and down this country. The internet can be absolutely brilliant at connecting people and providing people with information and connecting people not just nationally but across the world. But for too long, the companies haven't done enough to protect users, especially children and young people, from harmful content. And that's not good enough. And that's why we've listened to campaigners and parents. We're putting a legal duty of care on internet companies to keep people safe. And I would like to congratulate my right honourable friends the Culture Secretary and the Home Secretary for the work that they have done on this, uh, on this issue. Online companies must start taking responsibility for their platforms and help restore public trust in their technology. Ian Blackford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Today, as we know, is the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, a peace accord that not only ended violence in Northern Ireland, but brought stability for all of us living throughout the United Kingdom. Mr Speaker... Brexit threatens to undermine that, to drag us out of the most successful peace project in history, the European Union. What a tragedy. Mr Speaker, it is now one week since talks began between the Tory government and the Labour Party. I want to ask the Prime Minister, at any point during these talks, has a second referendum been offered on the government side of the negotiating table? Yes or no, Prime Minister? My, my position on the second referendum, the Government's position has not changed. The House has rejected a second referendum two times. Uh, now, when we come to a deal, we will have to ensure that legislation goes through this House. Of course, it may be that there are those in this House that wishes, wish to press that issue as, that, uh, as the legislation goes through. But my position on this has not changed. Ian Blackford. Well, it was a very simple question, Mr Speaker. Has a referendum been offered, yes or no? Mr Speaker... People can't have faith in a backroom deal cooked up by two leaders who don't possess the ingredients to hold their parties together, never mind hold these islands together. Scotland won't be forced to accept what these two Brexit parties are preparing to serve up. There is no such good thing as a good Brexit. There is no such thing as a good Tory Labour Brexit deal. The Prime Minister must recognise the difference between what she believes is duty but what the rest of us see is delusion. In her final days as Prime Minister, will she accept the EU offer of a long extension, accept that she has run out of road, and accept that the only choice now is to put this back to the people? 
I've, I've, uh, as I've said, I've made my position clear on that. Can I just say to the right honourable gentleman that I think it is a little difficult for many of us in this House to hear him week after week stand up and say that uh, the UK should stay within the, uh, in the European Union, when Scottish independence would have meant taking Scotland out of the European Union. Dr. Andrew Murison. A lot of noise. Let's hear the right honourable gentleman. Dr. Andrew Murison. Surplus waste incinerator capacity is taking pressure off efforts to reuse, recycle, uh, and reduce waste. Will the government strengthen its bid to host the 2020 UN Climate Change Conference by putting a moratorium? on new incinerator gasification and pyrolysis applications, including the one in Westbury in my constituency. Well, can I thank my honourable friend for raising this issue and for highlighting the fact that we are bidding to host COP26. Um, I, I, the issue of incineration, I understand, is a crucial one, particularly for certain local areas. We do want to maximise the amount of waste that is sent to recycling rather than to incineration and landfill. And, uh, waste, but waste plants play and continue to play an important role in reducing the rubbish sent to landfill. But we do welcome work to drive down waste to landfill further. But if wider policies don't deliver our waste ambitions in the future, including those higher recycling rates, then we will consider the introduction of a tax on the incineration of waste, and this would operate in conjunction with the landfill tax and take into account the possible impact on local authorities. Mr. Ronnie Campbell. Charlie Foster, one of my young constituents, aged seven, has got cystic fibrosis. When he has a tax, it's like drinking. Oh, sorry, from, breathing from a straw. I've never tried the test, but I'm going to try it when I get back in my constituency. These young people are suffering very badly because of a drug called O-Combi, which has not been licensed by Nice. It has a 42% increase in lung capacity for these kids, and it stops them being sent straight to hospital which they have to when they have the attack. So can the Prime Minister try and get this drug across the line and give these kids, like Charlie Foster, a quality of life? Can I, can I first of all say to the Honourable Gentleman that I'm sure the thoughts of the whole House are with Charlie and his family, and we recognise the uh, significant concerns there are in relation to this uh, access to this drug. On the 11th of March, my right honourable friend, the Secretary of State for Health, held a meeting with the company Vertex, with NHS England and NICE, and they discussed how best to reach a deal so that people with cystic fibrosis and their families can benefit as soon as possible. Um, they've met again uh, later on in March and they're continuing those discussions but I will ensure that the case that the Honourable Gentleman has raised and the importance of this issue is once again brought to the attention of the Department of Health. Well, Blackman. Thank you Mr Speaker. The Housing Communities and Local Government Select Committee uh, produced an excellent report on leasehold reform and with the doubling of ground rents, outrageous charges for permission for minor improvements and the absolute scandal of developers selling the freeholds without even contacting leaseholders, this market is broken. Does my right honourable friend agree with me that we cannot rely on voluntary codes to set this right and we need legislation in this House to restore fairness to the housing market? 
Well, can I, can I first of all thank the Select Committee for their report? Can I also thank my honourable friend for the way in which he has championed issues around, uh, around housing? And uh, uh, his, uh, his act is already having an effect on homelessness uh, reduction. Uh, we've already committed to legislate to reduce ground rent on future leases to a peppercorn. For current leaseholders, we have been working with the industry to get existing leases with onerous ground rent terms changed to a better deal. Um, leaseholders of flats do have a right, right of first refusal when their freeholder is planning to sell the property. We're considering introducing a right of first refusal for house lessees as well. And last year, we made our commitment to consider a range of changes facing a uh, range of charges facing leaseholders and freeholders, including permission fees uh, and in what circumstances they're justified and whether they should be capped or banned. And I've asked Lord Best to chair a working group to look at regulating and professionalising property agents. We're carefully considering the Select Committee's report, but my honourable friend is absolutely right. If we believe that a market is not working properly, then we should act to deal with that. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister will be aware of the Channel 4 dispatcher's investigation aired last week into the extent of the involvement of both BAE and the British military personnel in the tragic war in Yemen. In the programme, it was claimed that BAE carry out 95% of the preparations for typhoon bombing raids, including the one that killed 40 schoolchildren in August of last year. Will the Government act now to review arms export licences to Saudi Arabia and the British complicity in these bombings? Can I say to the Honourable Lady that we have one of the toughest regimes in relation to the export of arms uh, across the world. Uh, She references the situation in Yemen. That we're very clear that that cannot go on. It's four years since the beginning of this devastating conflict, and there needs to be a political settlement. And we are working with and backing work that is being done by the UN Special Envoy Martin Griffiths. Um, the parties have made significant progress towards an agreement to implement phase one of the, the uh, redeployment of forces from Hodeida, and we're urging all parties to uh, honour the agreements that were made in Stockholm. Our total uh, bilateral commitment to Yemen since the start of the conflict now stands at £770 million. We're backing the UN peace process. The coalition coalition is there, and it's been acknowledged by the United Nations, is there at the request of the government of of the Yemen. We've been backing the United Nations peace process and will continue to do so, and we will continue to provide humanitarian support to the people of Yemen. Daniel Kaczynski. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Children in Shrewsbury receive on average £4,350 per annum for their education. Their counterparts in Hackney receive over 50% more at £6,590. These huge regional differences in funding for our schools are leading to real problems in Shropshire for supporting children with special educational needs and in the fabric of our school buildings. When will this Conservative Government finally tackle the huge differences in regional funding for our schools? Can I say to my honourable friend that we're obviously working to improve education for every child, regardless of what part of the country they live in or what their background is. As I made uh, clear earlier, we are putting more funding into our schools through to 2020, and uh, we've recently announced an extra £250 million for over two years for the high needs budget, uh, together with extra money that is being put in for children with special educational needs. But my honourable friend references the uh, funding formula and the distribution of funds. The new national funding formula uh, is 
about distributing funds more fairly, and historically underfunded schools will be receiving the biggest increases of up to 6% per pupil this year through the school's formula, and will also be allocating additional funding to small remote schools that play an essential part in rural communities. We have recognised the need to introduce a fairer funding formula, and that is what we are doing. Sir Mark Hendrick. Mr Speaker, in 2010, when the party opposite took office, child poverty had been falling continuously in Preston for 16 years. Today, according to government figures, 38% of children in Preston, that is nearly 8,000 kids, are living in poverty. Food banks are being overrun, and what is accelerating this demand? The rollout of universal credit from July of last year. Mr Speaker, can I ask the Prime Minister when is she going to scrap universal credit? Can I say to the Honourable Gentleman, the way to ensure that we develop a sustainable solution to poverty is a strong economy and a welfare system that helps people into work. That is what universal credit does. 200,000 more people in work uh, as a result of uh, introducing universal credit. Because work is the best route out of poverty, and the evidence is just the evidence is that a child growing up in a home where all the adults work is around five times less likely to be in poverty than a home where nobody works. What we're doing is making sure we encourage people into the workplace. There are more jobs out there, more people in work, a record level of people in employment. Work is the best route out of poverty. On Monday, a constituent contacted me to tell me that three men armed with a knife had tried to rob his 15-year-old son as he walked from a friend's home in a neighbouring borough. My constituent expressed his frustration that police stations are closing and he never seems to see police on the beat any longer. To keep our young people safe, isn't it time the Mayor of London reversed his decision to close Barnet Police Station and others in the London suburbs? Well, can I say to my right honourable friend, she's absolutely right that decisions on the closure of police stations across London are a matter for the Mayor of London. And uh, uh, we have been protecting police funding. We're, uh, this year there will be almost £1 billion extra available for the police. And the Metropolitan Police are receiving up to £2.7 billion in funding in 2019 20, which is an increase on last year. Um, we will always ensure the police have the powers and resources they need, but it's important that people recognise the responsibilities of police and crime commissioners and the decisions they take and in London that's the Labour Mayor of London. Jamie Stone. Mr Speaker I really think it would be unwise of me to mention any hotels in the Highlands this week. (laughs) At Dunray in my constituency in Caithness we have a skills pool which is second to none and as Dunray continues to decommission it is vital that we redeploy these skills to the maximum benefit of the local economy and indeed the UK economy. Can the Prime Minister give me an undertaking that the Government will work very closely with the management of the relevant local trade unions and indeed the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority to make sure that this redeployment of skills actually happens to the benefit of the UK? Yes, I'm happy to say to the Honourable Gentleman, I recognise first of all that this must be a, a, a time of concern for staff at Dunray. It is important that uh, we recognise the skills that have been developed there and make sure that we are taking every opportunity to put these to the benefit not just of local people but as he says of uh, the United Kingdom. We welcome the Dunray site restorations 
statement of support for its staff, its intention to support them through a transition into other employment. And I understand they'll develop training and support programmes to put individuals in the strongest possible position to move into another local job with one of the growing industries, such as space, which the Honourable Gentleman has already referenced in previous Prime Minister's questions, or renewable uh, energy. We do remain, he asked about the Government's commitment, we remain absolutely committed to supporting the region and the staff affected. We'll continue to work with the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority, with the Dunray Site Restoration Limited, Cavendish Nuclear, Jacobs and uh, AECOM during this time. Damien Moore. The Access for All programme championed by this Conservative Government is helping more disabled people, more elderly people, more people with prams and pushchairs access our stations with greater ease. After my campaign in Southport, Hillside Station was a successful recipient of some of this funding. Will my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, do more in this area so more of our stations right across the country truly give access for all? Can I say to my honourable friend, can I congratulate him on a successful campaign that he ran? to get that access at Hillside Station. Uh, We do need to ensure that we continue this programme of ensuring that we are able to uh, open up routes for disabled people by ensuring they have that access to uh, stations. Um, We are moving closer to a transport sector that is truly accessible. Uh, The changes that will take place at Hillside is an example of that. Uh, And if the programme continues to be delivered successfully, the Department of Transport will make submissions for further funding in due course. But it is absolutely clear that we are providing those extra opportunities for disabled people. I'm pleased to say that I think it's 900,000 more disabled people now in the workplace. Access is important for them, and the campaign that my honourable friend and others of my honourable and right honourable friends have run to get access to their stations has been an important part of that. In wishing the honourable gentleman a happy birthday, I call Luke Pollard. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, as you may know, there are 53 Mondays this year where rent is due for people who pay their rent on a weekly basis, but there are only 52 (coughs) universal credit payments this year. The DWP have acknowledged that this is a problem they are awaiting government action on. Could the Prime Minister confirm that she recognises this problem and will act to ensure that people don't need to find an extra week's rent or go into debt because of this entirely predictable universal credit Can I say to the Honourable Gentleman, he's raised this point, of course, um, it's worth pointing out no year actually contains 53 weeks. So if somebody does pay uh, a 53rd rent payment in a given year, that does, this payment will cover some days in the subsequent year and will mean that the following month only has four payment dates and as such the claimant will be overpaid for their housing and uh, a shortfall is immediately recovered. But it is about the way in which the days fall and making sure the system does work for everybody. Henry Smith. Mr Speaker, uh, if the Prime Minister is seeking a year-long extension to Brexit, uh, does she not recognise that that, of course, would cost over a billion pounds a month uh, to the British taxpayer in subscriptions to the EU? And does she not agree that that funding would be better spent on tackling crime, funding schools and even tax cuts for my constituents and constituents up and down the country. Yeah, yeah. I say to my honourable friend, I'm, uh, I'm 
pressing the case for the, de- the extension that I wrote to Donald Tusk about last week, that in fact was endorsed by, the, uh, by Parliament uh, last night. But can I also say to my honourable friend that I think it is important, we, we could actually have been outside the European Union by now if, if we'd managed to get the deal through, uh, and I'm continuing to work continuing to work to ensure that we can deliver Brexit and can do that in a way that works for people across this country. Mr Stephen Hepburn. What would the Prime Minister boast is her government's greater achievement? The Brexit shambles, rising knife crime, record numbers using food banks, pay packets worth less than a decade ago, or the smallest army since Waterloo? I'll tell the honourable gentleman. I'll tell the honourable gentleman what I'm proud of this government achieving. We see more people in work than ever before. We have seen tax cuts for 32 million people. We're seeing wages rising. We're seeing the deficit falling, debt coming down. We're restoring this country's finances. That builds a brighter future for all our constituents. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, I would like to see more women on the boards of big business. So will the Prime Minister join me in congratulating Ruth Kearney, who's recently been appointed the chair of Babcock International, first female chair they've ever had, and hopefully she will improve the company's fortunes. Can I, can I thank my honourable friend for raising this issue? I'm very happy to congratulate Ruth Carney for achieving that role as chairman of uh, Babcock. The government has been working and has done a lot since 2010 to see more women on the boards of companies. I think this is very important. The greater diversity we have on those boards, the better those companies will do. Wayne David. For the Prime Minister's visit to Brussels, I have a little light reading for her. It's a graph of police funding from the government in Gwent. It shows very clearly, but shows very clearly, but police funding is going down, not up. So will she study this carefully and come back to this house and give an accurate statement about what is really happening to the police funding in the country? Can I say to the honourable gentleman that we have been protecting police funding since 2015. We have made uh, this year, this financial year, this financial year, nearly one billion pounds extra is available to uh, to police, uh, and we have indeed put extra money into police. Uh, my right honourable friend, the Home Secretary, announced the hundred million extra that is going into key areas in relation to dealing with uh, with knife crime. And we've been protecting police funding since 2015. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Prime Minister earlier made reference to the British Indian diaspora. Would she agree with me that the diaspora should be commended for the fact that, despite comprising 4% of the UK population, they actually contribute some 10% of taxes to the Treasury? Can I say to uh, my right hon. friend, I'm very happy to uh, welcome their contribution that uh, the Indian diaspora are making to our country. He's referenced the economic contribution they're making through their taxes. Of course, many of them are running businesses that are employing people up and down the country uh, and successfully doing that. Many of them are successfully exporting from this country uh, and supporting our economy. But they also play a very important role in our society, and I'm very happy to welcome that and to uh, congratulate them on it. Caroline Lucas. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. This Friday, young people across the UK will again be calling for more urgent action on the climate emergency. So far, every party leader except the Prime Minister has agreed to meet members of this extraordinary uprising. 
Following a speech at Davos and a meeting with Pope Francis, 16-year-old Greta Thunberg from Sweden, who sparked this global uprising, will visit Parliament on the 23rd of April. So my question is very simple. Will the Prime Minister agree to meet Greta and hear direct from the young people when she's here? Can I, can I say to the Honourable Lady, she says, will I meet, hear direct from young people about the issues that they're concerned about in relation to the environment and climate change? I do do that, and I'm very, this gives me an opportunity to congratulate a school in my own constituency, St Mary's Catholic Primary School, that has won five Green Flag Awards in the last ten years, that last year, that last year won the first ever National Green Heart Hero Award. And I can assure the Honourable Lady that I hear young people often tell about the importance of climate change. This government has a fine record on climate change. One day, one day the, the Honourable Lady will actually stand up in this House and welcome the efforts this government has made on Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Will my right honourable friend confirm again that it is still this government's firm commitment to leave the common fisheries policy and to be negotiating as an independent coastal state no later than December 2020? Well, first of all, I'm, can I thank my honourable friend? He has, uh, he has been consistent in his campaigning on this issue, and I know it's of great importance to his constituents. And we remain committed to establishing fairer fishing policies that truly work for coastal communities. The deal we've agreed with the European Union would see the UK leave the common fisheries policy, uh, providing the UK with full control of its waters as an independent coastal state. We remain committed to coming out of the common fisheries policy. Drew yes. Henry. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The Department the Department of Work and Pensions replies, ministerial responses to written questions have stated, and I quote, universal credit should not leave councils out of pocket. Yet despite Highland Council providing evidence to show costs of £2.5 million, including £640,000 of additional administration costs, they still have no offer from her government. Mr Speaker, they're doing a runner, and every household in the Highlands is bearing the costs of universal credit. Isn't it time her government paid their bill. Can I say to the Honourable Gentleman, I refer him to the answers I gave earlier in relation to universal credit and the importance of this system, which is actually encouraging people into work. 200,000 more people in work under universal credit, 700,000 people getting money that they were entitled to that they weren't receiving before. Universal credit is helping people into work and making sure work pays. Neil O'Brien. Mr Speaker, uh, my constituents, Mark and Panna Wilson, have a little son, Ardy, who has the terrible condition, spinal muscular atrophy. He desperately needs the life-changing drug Spinraza, which is available in many other countries. I know the Health Secretary is working on this urgently, and the Prime Minister intervened to create a new route to market for this important drug so that my constituents can get the life-saving treatment that they need. Yeah. Well, uh, my honourable friend has raised an important issue, and uh, obviously he will appreciate. I think it is important that we... We, first of all, want to make sure that patients are getting access to cost-effective innovative medicines, but at a price that's fair and makes best use of NHS resources. And that's the independent system that we have through NICE, which reviews the, the uh, evidence. Um, I be- understand that Biogen has submitted a revised submission to NICE in relation to Spinraza, and a meeting of NICE's independent appraisal committee took place uh, in Mar- early in March to consider those recommendations. Uh, I think it is clear that everybody at the DHSC and in NICE recognises the significance of this drug, but we do need to ensure that uh, the decision is, which is taken is taken on the basis of clinical uh, uh, aspects uh, together with cost effectiveness, and that's what NICE will be doing in looking at this new offer. Richard Burden. 
Melrose Industries took over GKN last year, they promised ministers that they would back British manufacturing and that it would not reduce the company's defence capacity without the permission of the government. Last week, GKN announced that they intend to close the King's Norton plant, which makes windscreens for both military and civilian aircraft. So will the Prime Minister tell GKN that it expects the company to abide by both the spirit yeah. and the letter of the undertakings that Melrose gave last year. Yeah. Yeah. Can I say to the honourable gentleman, uh, I haven't, wasn't aware of the particular issue that he had raised. If I may, I will look into that and I will respond to him in writing. Thank you. Order.